Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, I'm Carolyn Ford here with Mark Snell. Hey, Mark. Hey, Carolyn. Good to see you. You too. And today, guess what? We're talking to somebody from across the pond. <laughs> so today we're welcoming Demetrius Perdico, head of engineering at UK Home Office. Demetrius, did I just slaughter your name or did I get it right? No, that was good that time. Thanks. For me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so Demetrius is leading one of the largest and most successful cloud platforms in the UK with over 3,000 technical users and millions of end users. So we're really looking forward to getting some insights today on observability, SRE adaptation, maybe like how he navigates things like user experience. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Demetrius. It's great to be here. Hi, Demetrius. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> so let's... First, start out with um, for for all of us, you know, on the American side. Tell us a little bit more about your role as the head of engineering and migration and borders. Um, you know what? Well, I'll stop there and just <laughs> let you talk. <laughs> sure. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I work within the UK government. The Home Office is one of the largest UK departments. Um, it roughly correlates to, I think, the US Homeland Security, but it's a little bit different. So we cover a, a mixture of immigration, borders, um, policing, um, and homeland security. But I, I focus specifically on the immigration and borders part, and, and, and more specifically, the cloud platforms are there. Um, so we've got a huge program of work now, as I said, about about three and a half thousand technical community trying to live all the different products and services that we've really moved into that digital age. Um, more specifically, I need that, that, that central cloud platform, so big users of AWS. Um, I was about back over at reInvent meeting lots of different AWS customers in the States just uh, at the back end of last year, which was exciting. Um, and yeah, a few thousand developers constantly developing products, constantly exploring new tools um, and being pushed harder as I guess our end users dictate the kind of level of reliability they're expecting in their services. It seems to be getting harder by the day. You got a lot of people you're managing. This just gives me even more appreciation for the fact that you took some time to talk to us. <laughs> no problem. Happy, yeah, happy, happy to be here. It's always good to share some stories to, um, to see. I'm sure I'll learn just as much as you. As you all continue to grow in your expansion of the platforms uh, in the UK, can you talk about some of the um, the technology uh, that you're introducing, some of the uh, new tools uh, that you're applying onto this? Yeah, sure. So I focus largely on our cloud footprint in AWS. So there's lots of new tools coming out there. We're mostly containerized estate now. So we've largely moved away from traditional EC2s and um, VMs that you kind of manage through and into the world of containers. Um, we're also been dabbling in the serverless world for a little while as well. Um, but that's, um, I think, I'm hoping this year is the first year we really take that and go and start shifting more to serverless, making our development lives a bit easier. Um, we've got within the central, we centralize what we call the platform capabilities, anything to help our developers focus on the products they're developing on. 
Um, so developing tools, collaboration tools, monitoring tools, alerting tools, all those kind of things. Um, and I think particularly in that that monitoring observability space is really exciting at the moment. Um, there just seems to be more products than I can uh, get my head around every day. In fact, I was just talking to Gartner a few minutes ago um, about getting their insights as well into that. Um, we're obviously looking at where we can move to more managed services as well. I don't really want to be managing services that um, I don't have to if there's a good offering on the market, but it's, often that comes out as a cost and it might not be an open source variant. So we're always battling with the, is it worth going to something open source versus paying someone but to, to take that pressure away from us. Well, well, you mentioned you mentioned observability. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the roles that um, technologies like uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning, anything uh, observability, are, are playing when it comes to the work uh, for migration and borders? Yeah, sure. So we've actually got quite a mixed observability stack at the moment from some older tools like Zabbix, traditional logging like Elk. Um, but then we've got we've got quite a mix at the moment in that monitoring, observability, alerting space around um, your big open source Prometheus, and then um, one of well, I think one of the leading um, licensed product, which is Dynatrace. Um, so and there's a kind of a there's always a bit of a challenge between I think between those two. Dynatrace definitely gives us a lot, and I've, I've really started to be impressed with over the last few years their AI machine learning there. Um, when I remember when I first went to implement it, I was got a bit taken back with our security team about the amount of access it needs because you basically almost got access to half the estate. Um, but actually, by it injecting itself across the estate and then applying some of their AI machine learning to it, um, I think it's saved us and not not so much my platform team, but the application team a lot of time. Um, I was often relying on those teams to implement the right monitoring, the right templates, the right alerting, get all those parameters correct. Whereas with the kind of AI ML in Dynatrace, we kind of leave it, leave it to it and go and spend some more time developing the product instead. How are those technologies holding up to the scale that you need to deliver for such a huge audience? Yeah, sure. So I think when we first moved to it, um, because we're also quite big in the FinOps space as well and saving money, one of the big things we do is we shut down most of our test environments every single evening and on the weekend to save money. Mm. And um, I think when we first did that, some of that AI ML was really confused because it couldn't work out what's going on. It had been trained for a production system 24-7, how that worked. So we saw something disappear overnight. It wasn't really sure how to react to it. Um, I think it's starting to come a long way now. I think they've been adapting the models and, and training them and getting them to learn um, I, I'm not sure they just learn faster where they actually learn what's happening every evening when they get shut down. That's interesting. Is Mark, do you know, is that a practice in the US, like US agencies to shut down test environments every night? I I don't know. I mean, imagine it's uh, agency by agency. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any sort of unified approach on that. Yeah. Um, so I, you guys do it to save money, Demetrius? Yeah, exactly. I think I think there's a number of it usually depends on people I've spoken to and where they are in their cloud journey. Most people just they start their cloud journey and just throwing everything at it, trying to make it work. And then suddenly the cost ramp up and then they start giving it the cost a bit more focus and um shutting things down that aren't needed at the right time. I think it's one of about I think six or seven other mechanisms um that we use get try and get the, the price down as much as possible. Um, actually, quite interesting is, is I think as Amazon are always an interesting company to work with, but they actively encourage you to do these things to save money. And oh. they've, they've only got so much capacity in their data centers anyway, and um, so I'm sure they 
the more the customers they can get in and impress, the better. That's kind of interesting because I thought it, that's counterintuitive to what I think they would want to do. They, I, th- I would think they'd want to increase utilization, but that's great that yeah, they do that. That's why, that's why, that's why I've never really met a company like that. They, they actively help you to try and save money like that. Like that. There's a lot of papers out there. That's awesome, but it's a lot, man. I can't even shut my computer down every night. <laughs> it's, it's too much to ask. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it touches on the sustainability. Actually, just quickly, if I, if I can, touch on the sustainability side as well, because um, I, when I was in Reebok, there's a lot of talk about carbon footprint around all this as well. Um, there, there was, a, there was some, a number floating around. I need to look into the truth behind it, but I reckon about 3.7 of the global carbon footprint comes from cloud computing nowadays. And it's growing by about a percentage a year. Um, but I think there's going to be a bigger push to do it in terms of sustainability because if you're wasting loads of resources in the cloud, it might, maybe it's costing you money, maybe it's not worth you shutting them down. But if you're just increasing that carbon footprint, there could be a bigger focus over the next few years, I think. Okay, I'm going to rat hole for a second because the carbon footprint, you just like totally piqued my interest. <laughs> Have you been able to monitor? Um, the carbon footprint since you started shutting down the test environment and, ha- and how big of an impact has it made? We haven't, we haven't um, given it that glance yet. We did it from a um, financial optimization benefit. Um, the carbon footprint, I would say, it's, it's only really become a big discussion the last year or two. All the, like the big, so your Azure, GCP, Amazon, they, they've all started bringing out dashboards over the last few years. Um, and that's one of my um, topics of reading for this year, actually. I haven't actually gone and explored it yet, but I know they've got a dashboard that shows you like roughly what your um, carbon emissions based on usage is and how you track that over time. That's so Demetrius, cool. Demetrius, you just made uh, everybody on both sides of the political aisle happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I also love money. Can you tell us about how much money it saved you? Um, yeah, it's actually quite a hard one to measure, to be honest, um, because... Whereas we, I think I can like to say, then we estimate, I think it's 64% from shutting down in test environments because you, you, you can do some basic maths, right? If you're running them, I don't know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. during the week and then you shut it down every evening, weekend, that's roughly, I think, 65%. Um, but as I said, that's only one mechanism. There's yeah. all the cloud suppliers have all different mechanisms like paying for one year upfront, which they call uh, reserved instances in Amazon, gives you about 30% discount. It gives, it gives them, you commit to pay, it gives them some predictability. Um, the, big, the biggest one we really focus on where we can is something called spot instances, which is basically using some of their unused capacity. Because obviously these cloud providers have like massive amount of capacity and they've got a whole bunch probably sitting around at any one point in time. They give you, I think it's up to about an 80% discount on that capacity. But the trick is at two minutes notice, they can just go and pull that and say, right, we're having that server back now. So you have to be able to handle that. Um, it's really good for development environments or short-term workloads. We've um, experimented with being production as well, but obviously it's a, lot, it's a lot riskier. This is fantastic. Like we could end the podcast now. I'm so happy <laughs> to hear to hear about this, and it's new to me. So I want to switch gears though a little bit and talk about site reliability engineering. And this is a term SRE that's you know fairly new to me. I started hearing it. I mean, I'm not in engineering, so I started hearing it about a year ago, um, and it's become at least for me, a little bit of a buzzword, but definitely, you know, really important over the last few years. So can you talk about how SRE is being utilized and adapted across industries? Yeah, sure. So I have to admit, I mean, I heard about it, I think about three years ago now. Oh, I don't feel Um, so bad. 
uh, a little bit more than you, but yeah, I didn't realize it'd been around for like a decade or more. I, don't, I can't remember. I know, I know it was uh, conceived by Google, and I've seen loads of people at the moment posting on LinkedIn about some of the, some of the things that I'm sorry to see. Um, so I think it's really about, I've always said on the same site, reliability engines, but it's all that focus on reliability. I think one of the interesting things about it is um, it's, it's bring some of the traditional communities together. So anything from the development teams who maybe haven't been given that reliability focus, but also looking at some of those monitoring tools um, that we're talking about earlier and how you make best practice of that and, and how you focus on the service rather than the um, infrastructure itself. Um, and the last kind of main pillar for me is looking at some of the traditional operational and ITIL models. Um, so things that will give a really big focus now on root cause analysis. We know we're going to fail, but it's about writing a really good root cause analysis, getting the right follow action up actions and following through with that. Um, so when we, I, I, I helped form the SRE team within our department, I think it was about three years ago now, and we've been experimenting of exactly how to run this. Um, we initially ran it with a kind of a two-pronged approach in the centre, one focused on writing down the best practice and really getting to the bottom of that. What does good monitoring look like? What does monitoring your service as opposed to the infrastructure look like? And, and what does a good RCA template, if you followed it, look like? Um, and then the second problem was about working with each of the application teams across the department and really seeing if they've met those standards or got, had any feedback into improvements they're expecting. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's what's that, 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 that's the kind of key areas. I think we've, we one of the biggest things we found, um, I think, is what we we created what we call the monitoring pack. So it's a standard way of monitoring your application. And now we go around to application teams and say, um, particularly new teams, and go. If you look into the monitoring application, just follow this pack. It's all done as monitoring as code. So it's all in a bit of code in a Git repository um, and go and apply that to your application and let us know if anything's missing. Surprised how many times you get new application teams who think their application's special and there's something different about it. And there's probably some nuances in it, but I'd say 95% of what you want to monitor an application is the same across most applications. No, everybody's baby is the most beautiful. <laughs> exactly. For sure. But okay, what you just described, and Mark, I've... What you just described sounds a lot like user experience, which is a big push here in the U.S. And in fact, uh, an executive order came out. Has it been a year, over a year, Mark? It's been um, about a year, um, but it was vague in what it was saying that, but it generally was saying, look, you need to improve your user experience, whether it's internal or external. Yeah. And it sounds like your SRE team has figured out like, all right, here's what we want to monitor and here's how we're going to decide you know determine whether or not we've improved the user experience am i simplifying sre too much no it's a big part of it i think under that pillar i mentioned about making sure that when we monitor and observe applications we monitor it from the user experience um so the user like me the end user yeah, yeah the end user okay. so traditionally if we were in one traditional monitoring a few decades back someone would have just said how much CPU in your server is running. And if it goes above 80% or 90%, then throw me an alert or, or memory or whatever that metric might be. Now we're saying, is the user getting a response time in X number of milliseconds? And if that changes, yeah, you need the supporting information. Maybe the CPU memory's gone up, but that's not the important thing because your CPU might be bouncing around all the time and it's really hard to get that right. Um, and if the user is still getting a good, good user experience, that's what really matters at the end of the day. Well, it's really cool that you took the initiative to set these standards 
Uh, is that is that kind of uh, is it going across other entities of the government or just within your organization? Uh, we we only focus within our um, department, but we're trying to put together some um, best kind of join up the SRE teams in the other government departments. I think in the UK we're a bit bit more. It's a bit different, I think, than the US um, in that we've got a central um, government department as part of our cabinet office called GDS, the Government Digital Service who is kind of the front door for user experience to all of the particular public. And they maintain um, what we call GovUK, um, which is where a lot of people go to find information and get linked out to the services from other departments. One of the things they do is, is they also distribute some of the standards for the wider government they try and encourage people to follow. Um, and they, they were some of the first, I think, in UK government that had started with this SRE journey. So as Mark mentioned, our user experience executive order was vague, just said, go, go, go make the user experience better. So I would be curious. I, I would love to know some of the other things that you guys monitor besides CPU usage. Um, like, are there two or three others that would be at the top of the list that you're like, if we can nail this, we're, we're delivering good user experience. Yeah, I think I think this is where we've started implementing what's called synthetic testing or synthetic transactions. Um, what is that, sorry, what does that mean? Like the synthetic word gets thrown a lot around a lot, and I'm like, yeah. why do you say synthetic? Why don't you just say testing? <laughs> okay. No, so it's basically an artificial something that you put into the system. So if I've got a public facing website and people are applying for something and filling out a form. Um, even whilst that's running, I've got a my my synthetic is actually running doing one of those as well. Maybe we set that to once per minute. It will also put that through, and I will monitor that perfectly because I know on that that specific transaction exactly what the performance is because it should happen every minute from the same location every time. It's, now it's important to, to to monitor the wider workloads and wider users, but if you've got a global set of users or even a set of users all over the country. One, one person on a mobile phone in a remote part of the country is probably going to have a slightly different experience to uh, somebody in a five minutes from later instead of doing the same thing. Um, so although we measure, we measure both, we also do the, um, a big focus on that, on that synthetic one to create that artificial purpose in there. And the good thing is where we, you see more modern applications, even if they're doing an API call, so it might not be a, a system that focus, um, is you, user focused or public focused, it might be a system to system transaction as well, which is two APIs calling each other. And you can do the same thing because an API call is is actually very similar. Every time you call that API from another service, you're expecting the same kind of response back in the same kind of time. Um, so you can use that throughout your... So basically what you're saying is it's exactly what it says it is. It's not a person <laughs> doing the test. <laughs> I think I could have figured that out if I would have just thought it through. Okay, so you're using the synthetic testing. So what else are you looking for to determine whether or not you're having a good user experience? That's the biggest one. Um, the Where we're exploring at the moment is um, what's called SLIs and SLOs, service le level objectives and service level indicators. Um, so looking for exactly the kind of quality you're providing, but sometimes over longer term as well. So if you're looking over a week period or a 30-day period, um, and then working, understanding was your, was, how, how much was your website up? Obviously, everyone would love 100%, but it's never going to quite, quite be there. So it's a level of failure. And, and understanding that from the get-go from an application, obviously, if you're something really important, then you want to get really high up in the multiple nights. 
But if it's not, then maybe 99.0 or 98% is is okay for you. Um, and using those measures, identifying what that number is from the start, and then tracking against that. You'd be surprised how many people would just always say, oh, I need five nines of availability because that's what I want. Then when you dig into it, many of those things probably don't need five nines of availability, particularly if you're looking at the difference between, I don't know, a public-facing function which is open to the world versus an internal function where you've got people working during the working day. So, Demetrius, are these self-imposed or self-created SLOs that you have put in place within your organization or are they actually formalized with your customers and your customers say, hey, these are the things that we we want? Uh, they're, they're self-imposed. I think um, obviously there's some are backed by the certain legal aspects of, of how the uptime of some of our systems, particularly the more critical ones, um, but they're largely self-imposed. I think just giving it a focus from the get-go of an application is the most important thing because it starts changing everyone's behavior and approach to how to um, deal with the systems. So do you think that there are improvements to be made when it comes to SRE development and what would those improvements be? Yeah, I mean, we're still experimenting how to even run SRE, I think. Um, one of the key takeaways when I've talked to Google in the past is and they have this concept of a more centralized SRE who really focus on the reliability and implement it for a lot of teams, whereas we've taken a slightly different approach of we set the best practice and then measure teams against it and try and enforce those 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 um, metrics against teams to see how how well they adhere to our best practice. Um, and I'm still not sure which is right, to be honest. Um, we're still changing up a little bit. So I think it's quite a fast-moving um, idea, although it says, well, said it's about, probably, I think it's about a decade or so old now. I think it's still changing a lot. Um, it's similar to where DevOps and Agile have been in the past, where people have various thoughts and ways of approaching it. So it's still, still in the early days of forming it. Um, I think the, the, big, the big one for us is changes. There's a lot of organizations that have been around for a long time, not, not your new startups that have a lot of enterprise systems and a lot of traditional service management um, that are going to have a bigger change when they're, they're, they're moving from monitoring the service. Just this week, I was um, being challenged by someone who they weren't able to monitor the exact same metric with a new tool. And I was like, but why, why do you need to? Are you measuring the service or the metric? Um, and they were still challenging that. This is the way they'd always done it. That's the, that's the way they need to continue doing it. What a good question. Are you monitoring the service or the metric? That's a really important question. And they couldn't answer. They just said, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. This is the metric that I I had before. This is the one I want now. And um, that's that's how we're going to move forward. um, Are are they open to looking at a new way? I hope so. That's my uh, my mission for a meeting later this week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk FedRAMP, Mark. Well, 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 I... um, I wanted to get your your thoughts around something, Demetrius. And you know, security is a very important issue for everyone. And um, in the U.S., uh, as uh, government agencies uh, move to the cloud, uh, you know, uh, move all their workloads to the cloud, they they need to um, they need to adhere to certain standards and controls. Uh, control requirements, and we call that FedRAMP, and that is, um, you know, a platform that um, is is really um, kind of driving uh, where how people are moving to the cloud. Does do you have that a similar type of system in the UK? 
Yeah, so I've, I've just been trying to understand a bit more about FedRAMP, actually. It seems like quite an interesting concept. We don't have, as far as I know, we don't have anything as enforced as that, um, but we've got um, actually a dedicated department, uh, NCSC, um, the Nation, National Cyber Security Centre, um, that focuses on cybersecurity all across government and, and really help all the different departments. I'd actually, I'd actually highly recommend people go and have a look at their blog. Um, I think if it's Google, NCSE, Government UK, something like that, then you, I'm sure you come across it, which gives a lot of best practice and they're recommending it because they're not only looking at how we do this as government, but how private organisations should be doing it as well, um, which is quite useful. So a lot, of the, a lot of the best practicing guidance is used across there. Obviously, as a government department, we work very closely with them to talk through how we're doing things and how we're implementing things and how we secure it and so on. Um, and help they, the, re, the recent meetings I've been having that they've really helped us look at what specific areas we want to look at and how other people in government have solved those problems so we don't have to reinvent the world. Okay, interesting. Mark, Are you working with all the, the major cloud uh, uh, CSPs? Uh, we, we're largely on Amazon at the moment, but we also are building our Microsoft Azure footprint as well. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Okay. So, Mark... I'm going to ask this question out loud. Who is behind FedRAMP for us? Is it Congress? Um, enforces it? Well, well no. Well, the, 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 they actually, the FedRAMP, they actually have a PMO. Um, it's, it's the government who is okay. enforcing that. So, yeah. And, so, they're, and they're, contro- they're controls and requirements that, um, that all vendors need to uh, adhere to. And to be authorized and accredited on uh, before they can uh, deploy into the cloud. How long has it been around? Like, I mean, it's been around as long as I can remember, as long as I've been in this space. But is it like 15, 20 years? I don't know. But it's been around quite a few years. But it, but the FedRAMP Authorization Act was just signed into law uh, recently. Huh. So okay, that's kind of big news because they've been trying to do it for years. But. Congress would they they would never pass it. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about what Demetrius said about, you know, NCSC. So it's being driven by the cybersecurity side of things. Is that would you say that's the big impetus around FedRAM for us is cybersecurity? I think it's G- I think it's I think it's GSA. Okay. Okay. What's GSA? Edit 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 this out if that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely won't. GSA. Okay. What does that stand for, Mark? We should know this. General Services Administration. There you go. Okay. It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be good to know if we, you mentioned that a FedRAMP is essentially a bunch of controls that you need to put when you're implementing the cloud. I'd love to see those at some point to see, potentially do a review on our side to see whether there's anything we uh, uh, we might learn from it. I think it's pretty extensive. Um, yeah, but, and yeah. it's public, right? Like the yeah. FedRAMP, I can, I'll, I'll find a link, Demetrius, and I'll send it to you. Right. Thank you. Yeah. All right. I'm going to Mark, do you have any more questions for Demetrius? Serious ones before we get to the questions that I care about. Serious ones. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Demetrius, I'm going to give you the last word before we move on to the fun questions. But do you have, you know, any any other thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Keep it clean. I just, I think, in fact, because we were talking about the SRE and the observability space, I think one of the things that have really been challenging me recently is that there seems to be new products coming out almost every day in this observability space. 
And there's um, some really good open source ones I mentioned earlier about Prometheus, and then some some really pricey ones in the market as well. Your Diamond Trace, Data Dogs, Elastic, um, New Relic white, white ones as well. I've hey, now we don't need to. We don't need to mention the competitors. We don't need to. We don't need to. <laughs> 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 um, but my, 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 my internal battle has always been: Is it worth paying that? Do I, I can I not just do this open source? Um, and I'm, I'm starting to learn how valuable development time is. Um, there's a massive skill shortage. I think this is a global thing. It seems everywhere. I know a lot of people from the States I've spoken to have said similar things. So anything I can do to give my development team times, development teams time back to focus on the development of their product, the better, um, which is what kind of resulted me on and saying, well, actually, if a, a paid product managed by a service provider of some sort, um, saves them that time. That's how we now put that decision. Um, but I just thought that's kind of, it was really bugging me for a while and that's how I got there. But I know that's not for everyone. Some others I've spoken to just a full, full, full steam ahead in, in the open source space because they want to be open. That, that's the space to be in. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because, um, you know, what we call that do-it-yourself uh, here in the U.S. where, you know, there are, you know, government agencies that have uh, pockets of teams that want to build things themselves. And I, and I know that there are, there are positives and negatives about doing it that way. But the fact that now you have to maintain and develop and, and keep these codes, uh, code streams up to date, that's a challenge. So you mentioned, you know, development time and freeing up your developers to do other things. I think that's a big that's a big issue. So it's kind of a it's it's kind of a commercial in a, in a lot of ways for COTS, uh, you know, type technologies. You know, yeah, yeah definitely. It's trying to compare that when you, I think some of us are quite good at doing a balanced decision against the different products. The problem is, is comparing that against the time you said you need to need people to then maintain that product, and it's also trying to find the people if it's always feels hard finding new good people to join the organization. So um, it's hard to really work out what, what's that going to cost you when you've missed six months of development on that product that you're managing yourself because you didn't have the people in the first place. There That's we right. go. We just got the sound bite right there, Mark. Well, and I mean, I'm thinking about like growing up. And so I grew up on a farm. We had a well. And my dad didn't know how to fix wells. Every time, and it would the well would go out. I swear to you, every time he would lose lose leave town, and so we would be without water, like no water. And he would always tell my mom, "No, I'll fix it when I get back." So sometimes we were without water for like two, three weeks. And I will tell you what, he always called in a specialist in the end to fix the damn well. So I'm just, you know thinking about how, just what you said, Demetrius, like let the experts do that, give time back to your developers, focus on the high stake tasks. Yeah, I think that's more, uh, I've actually been reflecting that more on the leadership aspect as well recently. Um, as you move up in, in terms of leadership, you need to work out where you want to focus your energy and, and where you can just, I don't know, as a government person, outsource it to a supplier, manage service thing. If I know I'm going to get a good service out, we get them to do it. But even just your day-to-day time, right? Like if I can, um, I'm, I'm, if I can get someone to help me with something else, and so I can utilize my skills as effectively as possible. I suppose I think we forget that, particularly at work when you first start, you're just trying to get, help, get involved in everything and try everything out a little bit, experience a bit, 
Um, but as you start moving around the ladder, you've got to try and focus that energy. Yeah. And when you do that, guess who suffers? Me, because I don't have water for three weeks. <laughs> it's about the little people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to go to our tech talk questions, which are just some fun, quick hit questions. And if there's one that we ask you that you don't want to answer, do it anyway. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just if you don't want to. <laughs> so, so I'm going to ask the first question. Um, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you wish for in technology? What would you, you know, bring into being? That's a hard one. Um, this, this will tell us if you're a Trekkie or Star Wars. <laughs> it's very important. Anything, Think carefully, Demetrius. Anything in technology. Or anything. 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 I don't know. My imagination isn't that good at that. Come on, you don't want to teleport. <laughs> um, I, I think I think reading. I think reading other people. I find I think um, sometimes reading other people and understand like their emotions, what they're reacting to, that kind of thing. So reading hard. minds that's dangerous. You, you want to yeah, read exactly. minds? Not quite reading the full blown mind, but just something to tell me. Why? No, you're saying that'll get you in a lot of trouble me. in your relationships, Demetrius. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you hear those tips like, oh, if someone moves in a certain way, they move their arms in a certain way in a meeting. I never remember any of those things. So if someone can just tell me that all the time. So what I about like know. a heads up display? Okay. Yeah. She just crossed her arms. You need to walk away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something like that. <laughs> well, that's, that's been happening for thousands of years. <laughs> all right, Mark. So, Oh, go ahead. So, Demetrius, what do you what do you think the 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 next big technology for this coming year is going to be? It's coming year or longer term? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right. longer term. You know, what, around the corner. Um, What's the next big thing say. coming around the corner? Yeah, for me, I, the next big thing, which I'm I'm trying to learn more about, but I feel like it's so far beyond that in my understanding, um, is the quantum computing. Mm. So it's been told about for quite a while. I'm hoping it seems to be picking up slowly in terms of the actual use cases. I can't say I know that much about it. It's one of my on my reading list to really get my head around there. But I think when that comes in, it's going to change a lot of how we do things. Um, it's a completely different mindset. It's not learning a, like just a new programming language. Um, I say that like it's so simple anyway. Um, it's going to be a massive change to things. Everyone's announcing things all the time. I just can't work out when it's actually going to make a meaningful difference to it. Uh, how yeah. we develop our applications. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of scary too. Like. I mean, mostly I get my information from sci-fi, so it really goes down the scary, the scary dark hole. But I mean, that quantum computing, and it feels like we we're right on the cusp, right? We're right on the edge of it happening. So, all right, I'm always looking for something new to read or watch or listen to. So, do you have any favorites? And it can be work related. It can be, you know, just for fun. Um, whatever you want to share with us. Uh, I go for, so I'm slowly getting addicted to podcasts. I haven't not listened to any podcasts until about two years ago. Um, some of my friends would, uh, I think be a bit shocked because they were always trying to convince me. I'd actually go for something called the happiness lab, um, oh. by Laura Santa. She's part of, um, I can't remember, one of the big, um, American universities. Um, and mostly it's quite a psych, uh, a um, psychologist by trade. Um, but I suppose in my own so both personal life and, and as well as work and leadership, it all become a lot more person 
focus on other people, managing, leading other people. And some of the tips she gives there, although sometimes you might, might be more personal focus, work focus, I feel like they, they overlap a lot, those, those kind of skill sets. I would highly recommend that. Just on, I quite back at it now as well, which I recommend. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a have good you ever read? Have you ever read The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama? No, it's on my list of my, my growing book list on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Um, in fact, it's on my shelf behind me. So, all right, we're going to let you go, Demetrius, because you've been very generous with your time. And I know that um, you have you have other commitments. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, Demetrius. Yes. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Tech Transforms. Make sure you share this episode and give us a like and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.